Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we'll discuss the Christian understanding of protesting. Today, we'll lead off with Ecclesiastes 3.7, and as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in your overview. So, with the right to protest under the influence of the Holy Scriptures, let's just dig right in. Right. Thank you, Randy. The civil, civil, the Kurt event, got civil on the mind. Well, hopefully this will be a civil broadcast. Uh, the current event is basically the ongoing last two years of protests uh, being done under the rubric of disrupt and dismantle. Now, this podcast is meant to help us reorient and challenge our thinking about protests, especially from the Christian perspective. I must protest. You must protest this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> well, maybe somebody will after we get done. Uh, the Christian expectation is that protests are about bearing witness to sin uh, or to righteousness, as the situation determines, uh, doing the will of God. In other words, a protest is about making a striking witness to God, not something used as a revolution to overturn existing governments. A key element in this we find in Ecclesiastes 3.7. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Exactly. That is what we're looking at primarily, and we'll see how we arrive at that. That's the uh, scripture that's also going to end this podcast. Protests. What are protests? Public demonstrations addressing some grievance. Mm. That's a protest. From our own Constitution, the First Amendment says the following. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Mm. Peaceably is one of the key words. We'll see how that works out. Just to give you an idea of the importance of protests because they've been all over history from the beginning until now. Here's one that's really interesting from the Roman Empire, and we're going to talk about the Opian Law, named after the fellow who came up with it, Marcus Opius. The Opian Law limited women's use of any expensive goods, limited amount of gold the Roman, Roman women could possess, and they were forbidden to wear any dress with purple trim, which Rome considered uh, this to be a mourning collar. Uh, the purple collar reminded Rome of its losses in the Second Punic War that was with the Carthaginians. And the women were not allowed to ride in carriages in Rome or in any town near Rome. The Roman women obeyed the restrictions at the time. However, during the end of the Second Punic War, which happened in 201 BC, people in towns near Rome put on their rich clothing again, rode in carriages, but women in Rome were denied these luxuries continuously because of the Opian Law, which is supposed to, I preserve, uh, I believe, preserve. Their funds, and so they wouldn't be spent on other things when they needed it for the war. Well, the Roman women wished to keep the inherited money and gold for their personal use, but they were not allowed to do so. This is one of the one of the primary ways women, at least of means, could express themselves as people who had some kind of worth of value. Mm. They attached it to their presentation, things they wore, and so forth. Well, some members of um, the tribunes uh, proposed eliminating the Opian Law. And the tribunes brought motions uh, to have the Opian Law repealed. 
When the majority vetoed the proposed repeal, the Roman women flooded the streets in protest. Now, there were tribunes who favored the open law, who said that they would never have it repealed. There was a crowd of men that came about. It was made up of supporters and non-supporters, and filled up the uh, Capitoline Hill there in Rome. Roman historian Livy says the following, uh, the matrons, that would be women, who neither shame, you can see his viewpoint on things, which neither shame counsel nor their orders from their husbands could keep them at home, oh. blocked every street in the Roman city and each and every entrance to the forum. They were protesting. They're fed up. We've seen some blocking of interstates and other things here that, recently. So, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, what goes around comes around. Everything old is new again. Yeah. Um, the law was subsequently repealed. Mm. And so throughout history course, women have been in the forefront of protesting. You can go from that to carry nation, bring about the uh, law of prohibition. Well, how does the Bible view protest? Basically, it's simple. The protest is trust God. You're not doing that. Don't trust man. Mm. We want to get oriented toward a biblical understanding of protest as to what constitutes a biblical protest. To judge other protests, we have that information, uh, or so we can initiate a Christian one ourselves. Now, in the Old Testament, protests are varied, and they're very shocking at times. They're not called protests, but that's what they are. They're God's protest against sin and ungodliness, and his Servants, the prophets, speak and act out his grievances mm. by way of the demonstration of their protests. So we'll start in the Old Testament and have some examples there uh, to contrast with what we find in the New Testament. For example, here is an interesting one from Isaiah 20, verses 1 through 5. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. It's Israel at this time in their history were putting their faith not in God but in other nations mm -hmm. to help them out, as mentioned there, against the Assyrians. And they were going to be bare butt, naked. He, yes. Yeah. Um, there's a big debate in the commentaries over was he totally naked or Probably not, because there's a variation, and we don't have time to get into that. Um, in fact, the text that Randy just read, they said the buttocks would be showing, which is a way of uh, humiliating prisoners of war. So he's, he's walking around as a prisoner of war for three years before the reason for it came to pass mm. as a way of demonstrating God's grievance against Israel. It was also a protest against trusting nations instead of God. So... And notice also here, as with these all these protests, the difficulty, the pain, the burden is borne by the protester, the prophet. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, protesters want to make other people yeah. have the pay, pain. Pay, pay the price. Pay the price and yeah. have the pain and suffering. Uh, let's take a look at protesting a nation's sins by the people themselves. Jonah chapter 3, 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh 
And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So they put on the appropriate clothing and walked around in silence, even put it on their animals. Mm. Uh, The whole nation of Nineveh was involved in this kind of walking around. Uh, there wasn't a lot of talking or speaking or crying out, just a demonstration showing, we understand your grievance, God, against us. We've been violent people, and we are showing now our repentance. Very different from the screaming and yelling with signs that you see people do at Absolutely. protests now. Yeah, Absolutely. And then um, we can look at, uh, here's a character from the Old Testament, Ahab. He protests himself as well because of his evil deeds. 1 Kings 21, 27 through 29. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Yes, even such a wicked person as Ahab Mm -hmm. uh, is confronted by Elijah, and Elijah confronts Ahab about his sins, and he takes it to heart, and he dresses appropriately, Mm. a silent witness, so to speak. He says, I understand your protest against me, God. Your your main protester has come and convinced me of that, and... um, I'm doing the appropriate behavior, and he was definitely dejected and sad and wore the the traditional clothing of uh, mourning, mourning his sins, just like the people of Nineveh did. And so that's another example of the kind of protest. God uses his prophets as the protesters Mm -hmm. to bring these grievances to bear against the people who have been grievously sinning, involved with idolatry, and with the view of their hopefully turning, like Ahab and the people there in Nineveh did, back to God. There is uh, other examples we don't have time to go into. In Jeremiah 27 through 28, um, God tells him to put on a yoke and wear a yoke and tell, go to the neighboring countries around Israel and said, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in here and this is, he's, going to, he's going to put a yoke on you people. And if you submit to him, mm. you can stay in your land. Mm. And then Jeremiah takes it to the king, Zedekiah, and says, this is what the Lord God says. You've got to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and if you do, it'll be much better than if you try to rebel. You must suffer the punishment. This is God's protest against their sins. And then the next chapter from 27, 28, Hananiah is the false prophet. And he breaks Jeremiah's yoke and says, this is not going to happen. God's told me it's, mm. it's uh, going to be just the opposite of you. Hananiah later dies, mm-hmm. which is basically proof that he was, he was wrong. But that was a little show-and-tell demonstration by uh, Jeremiah, and protests throughout history have usually involved some kind of symbolic language. Um, But again, notice it's Jeremiah who bears the brunt of this and has to confront uh, the people who would oppose him. 
Then we have Ezekiel, and uh, this is interesting, where he uh, does a siege. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, he builds a siege to, to demonstrate God's grievance against um, Israel and what's going to happen to them. Yeah, it's like he, he gets out some toys here, you know, and sets up a little, yeah, a little, I don't know. A little uh, demonstration of a, a miniature village yeah. of Jerusalem. Yeah. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you shall take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you shall lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie on a, down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the complete punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. How would you like to be doing that day after day after day? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but again, God had a grievance against Israel, and this is how he wants his prophet to act out what's going to happen to Jerusalem back home. They're in exile because of their sins. What's going to happen to the people, the families friends they left behind there as well. But notice the burden again of this demonstration, this protest of God against Israel. And one way of driving that home that they've been idolatrous is to have Ezekiel enact this day after day after day. Another burden put up on Ezekiel, we'll find Ezekiel 24 verses 15 through 18, about when his wife dies and how he must react to that death who is precious in his eyes, his wife, and make it, again, a protest against Israel and what they are going to be called by God not to do when judgment comes. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at the evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. Right, and that was a sign to them of God's grievance. Ezekiel carrying out the protest against the mm. people. Uh, when you hear about the judgment of Jerusalem, you will not weep, you will not wail. You will stoically, as my servant here has done so with the death of his wife. You will be mute during this. It's time to be silent, uh, in this case, under the uh, judgment of God, and time to speak. And then, of course, there's the extraordinary case of Hosea. God commands him to marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful, and this becomes a model demonstrating how God has been treating Israel as his 
wife, but they've been unfaithful to him. And that his marriage, which he knows going into it, is not going to go well. She's going to be run off and be with other guys. And yet, this is how the burden is upon the protester. That's the mm. point we're making here. Uh, as God says, I have a grievance against Israel. Hosea, you will protest this by your marriage. This is Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So his marriage was protest against Israel's idolatry. Mm. So there are many other examples, uh, all of them different in their way on the Old Testament, but uh, these, I think, suffice to show how God used the prophets to protest uh, sin and idolatry in numerous attention-getting ways. And I think one of the key there is the key is attention-getting ways. And the burden of that attention-getting is placed on the protester, not on the people watching Exactly. Protest. Exactly. Yeah. Even though they were sinners, it yeah. was the prophet who suffered. And there was a cost to the demonstrator, absolutely, uh, not to the population at large. And there's no cookie-cutter demonstration. Every demonstration is unique to the situation, and, and God um, so orders it. Well, the Christian expectation is that God-ordained protests will not look like the world's, but will vary as to time and place and the, uh, the subject of the protest. But uh, what weight is to be put upon such protests if they're to be done? Uh, is there such a thing as a Christian protest? And the answer is yes, but it takes the form of a witness. This is one of the changes we see from the Old Testament to the New mm. because of Jesus and bearing witness to him. So let's turn to the New Testament and see what we find, uh, what we can find out about similar kind of protest. And our main and only example will be Jesus, and we'll get more to that in a minute as we go through it. But just to know, things have changed. We're going to take a look at Jesus' first cleansing of the temple, which is in John 2. He does it twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and the second time at the end. And, of course, this cleansing is about people using the temple to make a profit. And Jesus is not pleased, mm. and he gives a protest. John 2, verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Right. Jesus has a protest. He acts with authority. He believed the protest was necessary. It's not peaceful. You cannot call this a peaceful protest because of all the disruption. And just imagine what the turmoil and commotion there was. It was attention-getting, attention but for whom? 
Well, primarily for the disciples, because they're the ones who remember later that verse from Psalm 69, zeal for my father's house, zeal for the house of God. So who is Jesus's target in this protest? Well, uh, in the beginning, of course, it's the authorities who don't like him and want him out of the way. But primarily, it is for, in the long run, those who will be followers of his mm. to understand uh, why he did this and why he did it the way he did. It was a quick protest. In some sense, it was violent, although we, I, as far as we can tell from reading the text, no animals were hurt. They were scattered hither, thither, and yon, and nobody was beaten half to death with a whip, as far as we can tell. <laughs> that was probably for psychological effect more than anything and maybe getting some of the bigger animals out of the way. Um, so there we have a, a demonstration, Jesus's grievance against the temple, which he is zealous for, because it's God's house. And they were using it uh, as a place for uh, everything else, but uh, the purpose which God ordained it for, to glorify him. We have in Mark's gospel, chapter 11, the... Uh, last cleansing of the temple. So Jesus' ministry is like bookended by two very attention-getting, disturbing protests against the religious authorities who are using the temple as a means to something else. In one case, it's it's profit, and we'll, we'll show that this is uh, in, in Mark's gospel, and uh, always to make money, and that's the problem. So in Mark 11, 11, uh, we have a verse that sort of sets the stage for the next day. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Yes. Um, since the first time he cleansed it, not nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed. So he takes it all in, and his timing on it will be tomorrow. Uh, meanwhile, we have this incident, which is in the middle of his having viewed the temple and assessed the situation is what he'll do the next day. And the matter of the fig tree, which is, again, a protest against Israel. And this is in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Right. This is a judgment against a harmless fig tree. You might say, why is Jesus so upset? And we all get hungry and we can't, mm -hmm. we have to get in line at McDonald's like I did the other day and always think, I got to pull out of here because this line's not going anywhere. And you get a little upset. Um, but it's the only miracle he performs that is of a judgmental nature. Mm -hmm. All of his other miracles have to do with life, enhancing life, bringing back to life delivering you to a better life, all those things. But th but it's against the fig tree. Well, let's go now to the next day and look at verses 20 through 22 and see the result of this in Jesus's commentary. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Yes, because Israel did not. And this fig tree was doing what it does as a fig tree, but yet it stands as a great uh, picture of the profession of Israel with the leaves, but producing no fruit, mm. the figs. And so Jesus is at the end of his earthly journey and having dealt with uh, the 
religious leaders of Israel leading astray the other people of Israel. Um, this was a way in which he protested. Interesting, again, is it not? Um, it's not the people who got the brunt of this. It was the fig tree. Yeah. But then we come, as he moves on, we move on to the actual second temple cleansing, which now is in Mark 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then evening came, they went out of the city. Yes. So, again, this was not peaceful as with the first one. And this time there's no no whip mentioned. No. But he did something which I was involved in once or twice. He set up a picket line. <laughs> he would not allow people to use the temple as a shortcut. Again, they were using it as a means to an end to make money. And other people would just use it and say, well, I got to go over here. We can just shortcut through the temple. It was all that time in the union that you spent. Yeah. That was what it was. Yeah. <laughs> the picket lines. The picket lines. Yeah. 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 And uh, you shall not pass, I think, of Gandalf. Yes, yeah, right. With the staff <laughs> telling the people, you shall not pass. I mean, and that is really uh, astonishing. Jesus saying, no, you stop here. You will not cross this line. You go back where you came from and go around. Yeah. The temple is not a shortcut. Which, that now that is something we see today that is uh, probably... Biblically accurate, at least the picket line, the protest line. Yeah. 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 As Jesus established it for his purposes. Um, and so, by way of summary, uh, he had two protests in three years. Uh, and the point made was not to be repeated. Now, what's interesting here is, keep this in mind, as we leave Jesus and we go through the rest of the New Testament, there are no more Old Testament protests in the New Testament. We don't see the Apostle Paul doing something like a Jeremiah wearing a yoke. We don't see Peter cutting his hair like Ezekiel did at one point to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of Israel. Uh, we don't find one of the disciples getting married to somebody who's a woman of ill repute yeah. and, and demonstrating the disfaithfulness of um, the church, as the case would be. Um, that all disappears, and what you're left with then is protest by way of a witness unto Jesus. Meaning, if it if it affects politics, that's great, as long as Jesus is involved and it's a, a point being made and a reference to him. Sadly, most of the poli politic-type um, protests have nothing to do with Jesus. Have nothing to do with, yeah, and even with basic law and order, as we understand yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. and But note well, the next day in the temple, I guarantee you, it was business as usual. They were back with their animals. They were trading. People using the temple as a shortcut. Um, think of the demonstrations we've had recently where you stay in a place until it's destroyed. Um, well, Jesus did not like what they were doing. So we asked the question, where is zeal for God's house? Well, first of all, Jesus knew protest isn't the way of life. Hmm. Uh, we, we bear our witness by the way we, uh, we protest, in a sense, by the way we live out our witness uh, to the Lord in word and in deed. And the temple is corrupt, but um, he knew that corruption wasn't going to stop just because he made a protest, and if he did another protest. And thirdly, of course, he knew where he was headed at this time of his life as well, the purposes he had before him. 
In other words, protesting isn't the top priority of the Christian. It wasn't for Jesus. He did it twice, and that was it. He had other things that were far more important uh, to do as the uh, cross, the shadow of the cross, began to fall uh, across him. So, now, of course, the, the temple, that corruption would be ended with the coming judgment of God um, in 70 AD, mm-hmm. and it was torn down. We, of course, help us to keep our priorities right. Uh, things are going to end. When the disciples in Matthew uh, 24 come to Jesus and they say to him, look at this beautiful temple, it's, it's wonderful. And they act like it's going to be there forever. And he says, nope, it's going to go. Mm-hmm. It's going to go. What matters is the coming kingdom of God. Uh, we got to think the same way. So we don't, in our priorities as Christians, even if it's a Christian protest, uh, it's not a way of life. And we have other things to look out for and to remember. First John 2.17 puts it well. It's also one of the, the primary themes for our podcast. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There you go. we got to keep that in mind. Uh, the people who are protesting these days, as we see them, uh, are interested in building a new kind of revolutionary country. And we know we have a better country to go to. Mm-hmm. So we cannot you know lose sight of our priority. The fact that this old world, like the temple of old, is going away. Mm-hmm. And there are other things we need to focus on. Jesus' protest was necessary but temporary. Uh, It was a protest for those who will get it and for the glory of God. Uh, The Old Testament way of protest uh, gives way to the New Testament where our main protest is by way of our witness, by word and deed. So what about Christian protests? Well, we say seek God for the appropriate protest if you think one is called for. Uh, Perhaps something beyond a Um, (laughs) t-shirt. The Bible says, by their shirts you shall know them. No, it says by their fruits. (laughs) By their fruits you shall know them. And by the way, fruits last longer because they reproduce (laughs) than shirts, which go in the rag bag. Um, So number one, first point, uh, each protest, each witness of a nature that might some be interpreted by other people as political, uh, each is to be an attention getter. That's what we see in all these. Mm. You get the the person or the people's attention. And that's for the message's sake. And that's your only focus. When it's over, it's done. Uh, Only gospel witness goes on and on and on. And... um, the reasons for the application of the gospel to a culture change, sometimes uh, year by year. We need to keep in mind the priority of the church, not just our individual concern, because uh, of Matthew 28. We are all called to contribute to the church to go forth, see the baptisms are done, and people come to be taught the word of God. Mm. Protest is about sin and righteousness, as is our witness for the Lord. Uh, and we are all accountable for that, and any any protest must have basically that witness orientation that makes it clear this is about the will of God, this is about sin, this is righteousness, this is about Jesus. What are some examples? Well, there's always a written protest. Uh, we mentioned in a podcast a couple of podcasts ago how the Canadian clergy had written an open mm-hmm. letter to uh, Justin Trudeau yeah. because of his uh, authoritative and many people understood as tyrannical crackdown on uh, civilians. Stop citizens. apologizing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that was the one we did. Yeah. 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 Um, some people, another example is what we call the march protest. We've seen a lot of those, a lot of protests doing marching. Or the truckers protest, which has been recent. Now, that was not a Christian protest, but an individual Christian might believe he's called or she's called to participate that in somehow. But, you know, it can't be something that goes on forever. It's not the priority of the Christian, but, it, you know, Everybody is, is uh, open to the call of God, and 
and to bear witness in the midst of even something like that. Uh, Justin Martyr wrote uh, a letter to the Roman Empire in the second century protesting the emperor's treatment of Christians and told him he was going to be under the judgment of God if he didn't uh, stop what he was doing. Uh, here's another one, and this is interesting. This is from NDTV, uh, published back in 1218 of 2019. It's uh, from India. It's from a church in Kerala, and that caught my attention because uh, uh, my wife and I, we contribute to a, uh, a mission work in Kerala. Kerala is on the southern tip of India on the west side. So here's the, uh, the quote on that from NDTV. A church in Kerala found a unique way to show solidarity with the people from the Muslim community as protests continue across the country against the Citizenship Amendment Act. What is that, you ask? Well, critics say it's designed to discriminate against Muslims and violates the secular principles of the Constitution. A group of carolers wearing skull caps and headscarves, the traditional clothing worn by Muslims, sang Christmas carols for Christmas at a church in Kerala. The church was St. Thomas Mathoma. According to a local online chapel, a channel which broadcast the video, and it was ridiculed online by a member of their local politician. Um, so, this group of Christian carolers donned Muslim garb uh, to make a point. Uh, so, who appreciated this? Well, not the fellow who ridiculed it. Muslims would have appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a way to love your neighbor. Someone was speaking up for them. And it was Christians who were doing it in a way that was silent because all they did was wear the stuff. It's like, okay, you made, yeah, it, it's, I, I like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's creative. It, it stays within the bounds of Christian witness. It's not violent. And uh, speaking up with a silent witness. Um, probably the best known Christian protests uh, come from the pro-life movement. But what might a Christian protest against some other major sin look like? What form might it take? Say, for instance, the idolatrous quest for power we see in so many politicians left and right. Mm -hmm. uh, we might, could use a few of those. Um, well, um, if you're a burden to do that, uh, how, how should it be done? You seek God. This is, this is a good thing because we don't do cookie cutters. We saw that from the Old Testament. And so many, all the protests today are all the same. Mm -hmm. They have no imagination. It's in the Christian religion that we find this imaginative way of doing things like we saw in the Old Testament coming in the New Testament. So um, we seek God and figure out how to do that if we God lays that on our hearts. Loving our neighbor involves at times a protest of some kind. Listen to these uh, two verses from Luke chapter 6, 31 through 32. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Right. Uh, here's a very good illustration of this. This comes from uh, Martin Niemöller. He was a Lutheran pastor during the uh, time of Nazism in Germany. And he was a protester against that. Of course, being a Christian witness those days automatically made you a protester yeah, yeah. against that government. And he wrote a, um, a poem to express the need for people who uh, are Christians, especially Christians, uh, to speak up you know, and bear witness when it's necessary. And it goes like this. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. And they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was Protestant. 
Then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up for me. Mm. So we close with Ecclesiastes 3.7 again. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Exactly. There's a time to be silent, as we've seen in this podcast, a time to speak. And that is the essence of a Christian protest, and wisdom determines the matter. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about. And I'm sure there are questions and comments about it. And we'd love to hear those questions and comments from you. So please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectation at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment on air where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.